My name is Isabella and today's Intern Whisperer Tip of the Week is practice thoughtfulness when organizing team bonding activities. It's not uncommon for colleagues to have meals together or to hang out after working hours for team bonding and networking purposes. Social activities outside of the workplace can help foster a sense of belonging and build professional relationships. Welcome to the Intern Whisperer, Jeremy. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Thanks for having me. Yep. This is going to be a really great show. You're hitting a lot of the boxes for us on a lot of cool things that we're doing. So I love the fact that you're a veteran. Thank you for serving. And there's like, you know, what does anybody say? It's like, you're welcome. <laughs> well, I always say it's a, it's a pleasure to have volunteered. That's my default response. That's good. That's thoughtful. Um, you're going to talk about a lot of cool things with our guests, uh, but we're going to go ahead and start with the way I typically kick things off. So tell us about yourself using only five words and why those five words. And so the first word, I had to practice this word for a little bit, enigmatic. So enigmatic, enigmatic comes from the fact that I've always been a very mysterious person. So uh, I think the Riddler, you know, from, from the DC comics, the villain of Batman. I am a puzzle solver. I am very, uh, you know, I've worked with cryptologists, cybersecurity analysts. I've worked in the National Security Agency. There's things that I've done that I'll never be able to talk about. And I think that makes me mysterious. It does make you mysterious. So I'm making a little note here so I can come back and ask you about something because sure of things that you just said. Um, all right. So your second word, bold, bold. So bold. you're wearing red, you've got red. red hair, rocking so. the power color. Yeah. yeah. So even down range my nicknames were lighthouse when I was in the Navy and tracer round when I was on boots on ground in Africa. Now a tracer round Geneva convention said that if you're going to fire ordinances, it's important to light up one every couple, you know, every couple rounds. So you're going to see if you, if someone is shooting anti-air missiles or, or bullets, one of them is going to shine. They're going to be bright. So you can see the direction of where those bullets are flying. That's all Geneva convention and, and rules of engagement. I was that, that tracer. I stood out like a sore thumb. People would make jokes about putting, okay, you're very tall. Let's just say that I'm six, too. five. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I would stand out and I mean, stand out a lot literally yeah. and, and, you know, pasty white. I'm a ginger. I've got everything going against me. If you put me out in the middle of the desert, 122 degrees in the shade, I was you know covered head to toe in our army fatigues. At the time I was, I was stationed with the army. I was working as a Navy. I like to say an army soldier. I was a Navy army sailor soldier deployed hmm. uh, out of ECRC uh, expeditionary combat readiness group. And they sent me out of San Diego uh, to go deploy to Africa, to what was signals intelligence, Marine battalion, Africa, where I spent over a year there doing analysis. Hmm cryptologist. I'm still going to come back to that one in a little bit. Okay. Um, you said calculated. Now that can have a positive or a negative meaning. What it's do powerful. you mean? Yeah, so I was late stage diagnosed neurodivergent when I was 31 years old. My brother, my twin brother was diagnosed at 10th grade. He was actually put on disability for a time for it. And what was then a DD. So attention deficit disorder. Uh, it took them the remainder of that time, whatever you want to calculate that in your head, um, 15 years for them to make that same assumption about biologically, even fraternal, we were twin siblings. Not identical, fraternal. We are fraternal, right. So um, the idea that I 
am able to do these puzzle solving things, these, these ideas, these aspects. Um, there, there is a calculated thought process with everything I do. I'm always trying to think of the next step forward. Um, e even in just mundane menial tasks, I will have so many thought processes going on in the back burners waiting to come forward. They'll just ignite. I'll solve a problem that I've been mulling around all day. Um, and it'll come to fruition and I'll have to stop everything I'm doing and work on that, that solution that I'll end up coming up with. And it's constant. Um, I, I would plan months. I mean, I'm a great party planner. I used to work with, uh, comic cons, including, you know, Megacon mm. is this weekend. Yeah. Yep. That's coming up. I used to do that over in, uh, Sacramento and, and uh, Hawaii where I spent um, most of my time when I was not deployed running things like OtakuCon, Honolulu Comic Con, all these different uh, pop culture places. And part of that was to get junior military out of the barracks and into those conventions without having to pay because it's expensive to live mm -hmm. in Hawaii. How do you get your junior military out there for some morale, welfare, and recreation? Well, you get them signed up to volunteer for a few hours so that they're left for the rest of the day. Military is providing the shuttles, giving them the transportation down off the mountain into Honolulu Central. And that was how my brain worked. I loved party planning. I loved doing logistics, security. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of my, my life for you know the time that I was in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So empathetic. Now empathetic. I, I'm, I'm making still notes because I'm going, oh, twin life. We're going to talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, empathetic. I like your words because they are definitely riffing off of another thing. Right. Empathetic. So I spent of the 11 years that I was in, almost 12, uh, nine of those years were dedicated exclusively to suicide awareness and prevention. Uh, the problem with my job field as a cryptologist, outside of nuclear engineers and air traffic controllers, cryptologists were the next in line for the highest number of suicides. Mm -hmm. And this is active duty. I lost a sailor almost every quarter. And that wow. is heart-wrenching for me. These are 18, 19-year-old soldiers, sailors recruited from their hometowns solicited in whatever fashion or manner to join the military, either through, you know, familial ties or their family had served in the military. They knew that there were going to be chances for them to go to college. They came from poor families and oftentimes being roped into this environment where they're unfamiliar and being told, well, you'll get to be stationed near your hometown. That's the biggest thing. The biggest, um, maybe inaccurate information is provided is, oh, you'll get a chance to be stationed by your hometown. And then they are sent thousands of miles away from anyone Nowhere they near. know. Right. And, and oftentimes in these conditions, I'll get sent to the barracks, E1s, E2s, E3s. I was making at $1.540 a month. And that wasn't a lot enough to really survive off of. But lack of access to transportation, even if there were events going on, the military tried hard to provide us with some sort of enrichment outside of our jobs. But it was difficult. So in those ties, you know, mental health is a big issue, not just for military service members, but also veterans, especially veterans. But having to go out and deploy, go get stationed overseas, float around Gator Squares out in the middle of the, the of coastline of Africa, just looking out towards land and seeing it and not being able to go there, it messes with you. You know, even getting stationed out in the desert, not having a you know, quick access to a fast food restaurant or nowadays it's a little bit less common, but if you're, if you're going down to, to you know, forward operating bases or you're going into the, the thick of things. You may not have access to some of those, those luxuries in life that you'll start to miss. Internet access was another thing too. If you're in the Navy, oftentimes your internet was cut off. You, there were times where you're doing missions and you couldn't send letters back home. So you had no idea what was going on. Letters. 
or, or emails or, or anything. If you did send yeah. a letter, oftentimes it would get choked in the transportation back and forth between the various post offices because we did have APOs and FPO, fleet post offices, army post offices. Um, I'm not sure if that's the acronym, but the APOs and FPOs, yeah. you could send out and they would be held up a long mm -hmm. time. So even those romantics who were sending out snail mail in hopes that you know, in a couple of weeks, your, your person would get it. We had internet access. So you could even send out internet emails, but oftentimes that could get choked. You would have, a, have to wait until your mission was over before those could all get sent out. So they put them in like the outbox and they just stay there until right. you're in a place of neutrality, I guess. Well, until everything, until the mission was yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. How much was that budget? You said how much money? Oh, how much was allocated to? Um, you said 1.5 million? For, for which part? I don't know, but you said something just a, a little bit ago and I was going, what was that budget? Oh, I don't know. I must have shotgunned something. Yeah. Because I was going, uh, there was a budget. Oh, we'll have to go back and listen to it later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in post-production because I can't go back right now. Anyway, there was a lot of interesting things that you brought up, brought up, but our last word, our mm -hmm. last of the five words is service. I added this service oriented, service oriented. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a um, hyphenated word. So it counts. Sure. And I came from a background of being a servant. Um, I was raised in a conservative Christian home. I was raised on uh, very traditional values. I was essentially brought up to be a servant. I was, I was, um, even well, as a man of the house. It's consistent with being a military person. You're there to serve. Right. And I had uh, veterans in all of my uh, elements of my family. There were my uncles, my aunts. I had a grandfather who served in the military. My stepfather had served in the military as a Marine. My stepbrother enlisted in the Marine right before, as a Marine right before I did, I went in the Navy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got this service to community, a service to my church, a service to, to um, my country was just, it made sense at the time. Um, and even to that extent, I take care of my friends. I take care of my family. If someone needs something, they always know that I'm, I'm a loyal person to ask for something. I have the truck to help my buddy move over a weekend, as long as he's bringing beer and pizza. We know that that's the rule. Um, you know, if we're, if we're going to go take care of a situation, I will load up whatever I need to load up and go take care of a friend. That's, that's the idea of service is that I, you know, it's less about me. It's more for taking care of everyone that else. That is exactly consistent. And while you were saying that, I did a little bit of a, a search here for military slogans, taglines um, mm -hmm. that were about serving strength and preparedness, be all you can be all you can be. Yeah. Wings of destiny. Who dares wins? Do not yeah. give in to evil. There's all kinds of uh, really cool things in every climb and place. I just like it. It's very inspiring. Right. Yeah. I will compliment you. I told you before we started, you have radio voice. I love it. It's super cool. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, I worked as a cryptologist. So the majority of my time I did spend with cans with, with earphones on. So mm -hmm. I had to learn how to talk and be able to enunciate, especially to senior level leadership. So I think that played into my ability to be able to speak, but I've also had a, a journalism background, public relations, you mm -hmm. name it. So just being able to speak properly. I speak good is uh, kind of a requirement in our job fields. <laughs> so your last name, Gottschalk. Gottschalk, yep. Okay, what, where does that come from? Gottschalk means God's clown or God made a joke. It's German. It come from my, uh, came from my stepfather. Uh, I was adopted when I was eight. What that means is that 
my stepfather essentially put his name on my birth certificate. Um, I had no, you and your twin were both adopted and my little brother. Yep. There's another one. So all three of us were, were brought into the fold of the Gottschalk family. Oh, wow. Yep. And, uh, you know, he was a teacher and he got chalk. It was the running joke. Uh, he passed away from diabetes. Um, and we did not have a very close connection. I was literally a redheaded stepchild. Uh, but for the most part, I'm thankful for the opportunity I had to have a, uh, a family dynamic where I had uh, the, the upbringing of, uh, parental figures, two parental figures that were there to, to offer me guidance and, and lead me, you know, away from, the chaos and calamity that can come from being such a, a high, strong, energetic bounce off the walls, absolutely just monstrous teenager as most young boys are. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true. That, well, that was an awful lot of, uh, what were adjectives to describe, you know, teenage years <laughs> and it is filled with angst. That's for sure. Right. Um, I feel sorry because I think that just about everybody that was a teenage boy, their parents must have a hole in the wall somewhere in their house because every, my brothers would go and punch yeah. a hole in a wall and in further discussion of other people, men that were reflecting on their teenage years, it seems to be consistent. Right. The characteristic, did you punch a hole in a wall too? I was, I was nonviolent. I was always pacifist. I didn't realize that until after I joined the military. That's then, so funny. You joined the military, totally yeah. opposite. And I, I was an expert. Uh, I, I was expert twice over uh, when, with weapons qualifications, I could shoot, you know, something. Two many, different things. How many yards out? Um, I knew martial arts. I was trained in Taekwondo, Tang Sudo, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and then uh, MICMAP, which is the Marine Corps martial arts program. Um, and so I, I knew how to hurt someone. I just didn't want to. Well, that's the purpose of knowing those things is how to keep yourself under control sure. so you do not harm others. Oh, everything about the military was to try to put me under control. That was uh, the biggest reason for me joining outside of the travel, outside of the college and education benefits. I needed to corral my energy level down because I was uh, unhinged as a, a high schooler um, and needed direction. That's where I thought I was going to get it was joining the military. Was that also as an eight-year-old? Did you feel like you were really rambunctious? I, I, if the correlation between my craziness at eight, I, I didn't actually want to go into the military until I was almost, you know, probably 10 months before I did it. I'm very mm. impulsive in that regards. So I was still in high school at the time, maybe 11th grade, um, before I, I started thinking about that. Um, but as an eight-year-old, I think I was just... Do you remember being eight? There, there are definitely I don't. issues. Yeah, I have blackouts. I don't remember several years of my my young childhood life. Um, call it trauma, whatever you want to deal with. But uh, yeah, I don't particularly remember a lot of my youth. I mean, if I really, really thought hard, burst a blood vessel in the process, I could regurgitate something. But yeah, my my youth then so young, so 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 young back then. It's been so many years. <laughs> So I didn't know you do voices also. My dad, I speak with my dad about every other week. I need to get back into the regular weeking, uh, weekly phone calls with him. Mm -hmm. One of the things we do is I love the stories. And I ask, he's my only living parent still. Um, and I go, so tell me stories. I want to know stories. He goes, how come you don't remember any of these things? Right. And I said, he said, was your childhood so traumatized? I said, Actually, I don't know why I don't remember. I mean, I remember right. significant a lot as a child, but I don't remember what year and where we were. And so I said, 
write that down for me. Give me that. And I think so- there's there's keystones. I think that especially depending on how your brain works, especially with, with me coming to terms with neurodivergence, being late stage, it traumatized me. It's hard to look back and think that anytime you were ever spanked because you couldn't remember something, anything that someone put you under duress and you weren't mm-hmm. able to do recall on those events, it was traumatizing to realize, hey, if I'd just been medicated properly, if I'd gotten therapy or if I had dealt with this a different way that I might not have gotten beat or I might not have you know, had the belt or go and gone and pick a, a stick, a switch out from the yard. Mm-hmm. I, I think about that constantly, you know, and it's not, it's not a regret necessarily. And I can't change anything that happened. Mm-hmm. It's just the realization I had to come to terms with that as being just who I am. There, there mm-hmm. are times where I was asked something, a standard attention was a big thing with my stepfather would tell me, Hey, standard attention, you will answer these questions. Um, and I wouldn't remember them. I wouldn't remember the answer because it had just been too stressful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, locked my knees, passed out one time. And it was a, a attention seeking behavior. You know, if someone had understood at the time that that's how I, I, I functioned, if I how I thought, I'd been a lot easier to handle um, dealing with uh, disciplining from from, you know, my, my parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good stuff there too. Right. All right. So as we continue to go through here, educational background, where did you go if it was college or, you know, how did you get to where you are now. So you can start at any point in yeah. time, whether you want to start yeah. at high school when you join the army or uh, if there's a different point. In high school, I was part of the journalism class. I was part of the yearbook staff. I was a TV productions as well. Um, I, I did just about everything I could get my hands on to as multi-potentiate as they call us millennials as I love to get my hands on everything. If there was an event going on, pole vaulting, cross country, soccer, I did it. I lived for most of my high school right across the street from the high school. So I could walk over there and I often did. Um, And that made all the difference to me Uh, going into the military afterwards was the expectation that I was going into an environment that was going to be public relations, journalism, what would be called a defense institute for um, uh, education, primarily for uh, journalism and media communications. So that was solely where it was based out of Um, come to find out cryptologic technician collections, which was the rate and the job I was put into, doesn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. I was given a, a technical reporting job, not understanding at the time as a high schooler. Technical reporting is not journalism. That is sitting there at a computer filling in data blocks to uh, send out mm-hmm. you know, rapid, rapid response messages about activity that's going on. And that's very little of what the overall job as a cryptologist was. But it was a primary component, and that's how they discerned uh, differentiating between the different types of cryptologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine was collections. There were also interpreters, which were the linguistics. Um, you know, everyone asked me, oh, what language did you speak? I didn't speak any. I barely spoke English. You know, I, I, that, that's a joke. I mean, I spoke pretty, pretty well. I spoke good. Uh, but for <laughs> the most part, I didn't go into school specifically to learn mm-hmm. another language, you know, Korean or, uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese. So Spanish. don't cryptologists break code we do we do as part of that job cryptologists difference between cryptographers as much people understand uh, cryptographers is is the idea of a puzzle solvers when you think of Mm -hmm. alan turing and the invention of coincidentally you know uh, the the enigma Mm -hmm. you know and and, uh what was called the the purple dragon i believe at some point Uh, you have all these different um encoding programs and these uh, these uh enciphering machines that you had to have broken out during World War II. Um, so to, to 
to focus away from the puzzle solving aspect, the cryptologists, their job was to break communications, Morse code operators from the early oh, days. Oh, that, okay. Most people know that one. Yep. So Morse code operators then transition into signalmen or radio, radio men, and then eventually into cryptology, which is what moved into uh, every element of cybersecurity and uh, primarily the radio, radio frequencies and uh, the entirety of the, you know, spectrum, a spectrum of communications. Hmm. Um, Rubik's cube. You any good with that? No, no, absolutely not. I, I had to cheat. I don't I'm have the attention lie. span for it, honestly. <laughs> I know. I would sit here and go watch people go, Shh, they're shifting it all around. It's like really amazing what they do. But on the same hand, I went, you know what? You can just peel these stickers off and make it right. Match. Yeah, that that was a, a thing between myself and my twin brother is stories from my cradle mm -hmm. is that he was the engineer. He would go and build everything and then I would play with it and break it and then he would build it. And I don't know how that dynamic played into neurodivergence or neurotypical. Um, but it, I did not, I knew systematically there is a set number of steps that you can use to complete a Rubik's cube. I never had the interest to know how to do it. Yeah. I don't either. I like other types of, uh, puzzles, you know, people themselves, actually, right. they're the biggest puzzle. So yeah, understand. Absolutely. People. And I think that's one of my biggest fortes too, is just, I crave understanding human interaction. Mm, did you take a lot of psychology? I did. Study it? So surprisingly, most of my college education while I was in the military was while I was deployed. Mm -hmm. And I took uh, American Military University. I took uh, University of Maryland, University College of you Europe. You do that online? How do you do that? They're called NC PACE. So they were Navy College Pacific or some, some sort of a float college program, mm -hmm. or, or I don't know what the P stood for, but uh, NC PACE gave me an opportunity to learn these college classes while afloat. So they would bring teachers on board. Oftentimes they were truncated classes. So you could do things like English, math, whatever. While I was deployed, same thing. Army brought in people. Uh, Camp Lemonier was the, the naval base. It's the only military installation of the U.S. in the continent of Africa, which is massive, size of China and the United States all right. crammed into there. He's still not filling it. Um, so just over in, in Djibouti, Africa, while I was taking college classes while working a, a 12 to 18 hour day, we'd get off work, go do some classes crawl to bed, wake up, do it all over again, you know, seven days mm. a week. Sounds so, it does sound very romanticized, you know, <laughs> the way that it's being described right now. And the word uh, in literature, romantics does not mean, you know, like loving mm -hmm. it, it's different. It's just nostalgic more than anything. Right. There's a, there's a methodology to it. You know, I mm -hmm. love my time overseas because in a way, you know, that you hear from the negative side of things, it's institutionalized. You're mm -hmm. essentially, it's not a prison, but you're in a very methodic place. You're expected to do X, Y, Z. You're told on the daily, mm -hmm. wake up at this time, mm -hmm. go eat. Mm -hmm. Your food is covered for you. You're not paying for anything out of pocket. Mm -hmm. You're banking all this, this per diem. You're making all this money from being um, you could hazardous I mean, zones. as long as you don't spend it, you know what right. I mean? you got like whew, money, you know, you, you save up all that money for a year. So you could go and, and marry the first person that bats an eye at you and, and, you know, forget to put a down payment on a house, you know, buy a fancy ring and a wedding instead. Um, financial woes are, are always something I, I hear about from military veterans as well, but you can make a lot of money being deployed. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the allures outside of the fact that you're in literal combat zones and yeah. danger zones at any given time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Twin life. Twin life. Yeah. What is that like? Because while you didn't share, I mean, it's unusual for a child to be eight and getting adopted. That's very unusual. Um, there's, I'm sure a story there, which you don't have to share, but 
What's it like having a twin? Even though you're fraternal, mm-hmm. do you actually sense things about, you know, like the whole, know, like the whole identical twin psychic connection? Yeah. I think at a very early age, we had a lot of nonverbal communications. There were little nuances. We could read each other's body language very well. My brother was always predisposed towards uh, anger more than anything. Um, mm. His life um, was very challenging. He had a hard time coming up um, just socially and otherwise. Um, he does a lot with, uh, he works uh, primarily at one of the theme parks. He does a great job there. His job is he tall fits like him. you? He is. He is. Okay. Um, he's much larger. Uh, wow. Yep. You're pretty tall. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so uh, size wise, he's bigger than, than I am, but he's actually six foot three. Uh-huh. And, and he's, um, as far as weight goes, he's, he, he weighs a little bit more than I do. Um, and he, he's scruffy. He doesn't look anything like me. He's mm-hmm. got uh, dirty blonde hair. Whereas I'm, you know, would be a lanky ginger, even though I'm, I'm told, uh, BMI wise, I'm, I'm actually overweight. Um, it's, the taller you get, the more challenging it is to hit those, those metrics. I tell you. And it doesn't matter. You can be short and it's the same thing. Right. Yeah. So I have to break out a salad every once in a while now as a, as you get older. This is all that matters for men. Oh, <laughs> I think I want to lose five pounds. Boom. It's gone. That's right. all a man has to do. It's a little harder when you're on the female side of it right. based on whatever their hormonal issues are. So it's a, a six lot. It's a lot easier for you guys. Absolutely. Right. Just because of the genetics there. That's one of the things that uh, my counterparts, when I hiked on the Appalachian trail, uh, that is a three to six month trip. That 20, isn't, yeah, that's a whole story there. 2,200 miles. We walked it. Um, I broke two of my toes in the process, still Whoa. kept going. And uh, all the friends around me were emaciated, but because I broke my toes, that meant I had to slow down, which typically is not something most uh, of the men out there would do. They're outdoorsmen, they're, they're competitive, they're enthusiasts. And they get to the, the mountaintop where they're supposed to be at Katahdin and Baxter State Park of Maine, climb up to the ridge and they would just look emaciated, you know, look like uh, something coming off Davy Jones's locker, you know, or yeah, a skeleton, know, the undead, right? Because they had just lost a shed every ounce, you know, huge, huge calf muscles. I mean, we all looked like mm. we were carrying tree trunks. Um, and, and then coming down from the hill, you know, no, no arm muscles whatsoever left and (laughs) (laughs) still carrying our 30, 30, 40 pound backpacks. Or if you're ultra light, you're carrying, you know, 18 pounds, whatever. But yeah, for me, I did it the the conventional way Mm. and and walked off the war that way. So if you're, if you're actually hiking that, what is it that you eat? You just eat whatever you find along the trails. Uh, Essentially it's a giant group of backpacking trips it's three to five days before towns mm-hmm. i don't think i ever went a period the appalachian trail is one of the most civilized trails that's, yeah that's 20... it's it's hardy though yeah it's tough oh yeah <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of ridges you climb the equivalent of mount everest 16 times uh and that's uh 10 million steps um well oh. I, I of course played the uh the was it nora jones song i think it is i walk a thousand miles or whatever <laughs> Or I could walk. I would okay, I'm walk gonna look. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. I don't think that's Nora Jones, but yeah. I played both of those. So like every milestone. Yeah, to, I'm looking it up. Yeah. So I'm gonna find it in just uh, a minute. So, so and in this case, I was coming out of. Uh, I believe it was. Uh, I remember the town that I walked into. My my hiker friends are gonna gonna shun me for this but came out underneath the bridge and had reached that a thousand miles and was singing it in my head. Um, 
It's the da 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 da. I know exactly. It's on Cruz my playlist. Famous, you know, it is on my playlist. It says uh, Jim White. No, no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going. That's not it. The pretty, Proclaimers. Pretty sure she's, she's playing on a piano. Vanessa Carlton. Through. Vanessa Carlton. There we go. There you go. Yep, yeah, it's Vanessa Carlton. Not Nora Jones. It's Vanessa Carlton. So yeah, I I, I know that. the song because it's on my playlist. I don't always know the artist, but I know that song. Blaring. Yeah. Mind you, this was in 2017 when I did this. So yeah, and I'm I'm not maybe not the best at memory. But uh, that's definitely... okay. You know, we not every memory has to stay locked in, right? right? Yeah, no, it's just... okay. We make space for whatever just else. Just the is... random trivia, right? For exactly for Marvel movie nights at you know Ivanhoe Brewing and otherwise. So, so did you like being in the military? Did you find it to be how long did you serve? I served 11 years. That's a lot. Yep, that's a, that's a lot. As, as many would say, I went over that curve at mm -hmm. 10 years. The decision has to be made between keeping it career or not. Mm -hmm. um, there was some wheeling and dealing going on with the Navy when I went and joined. So I, I did originally was uh, enrolled for four years. Um, as I went to my next duty station, I was incentivized to take up another training. And in order to do the training, they wanted 18 months out of me. Mm hmm it started at the end of my training. So then I added, you added on a couple more years and you mm -hmm. add on a couple more years. You want to go to another G station, you got to add on a couple more years. So uh, you can say I joined for four years and I stayed for 11. Uh, and at that point uh, had some pretty traumatic stuff happen. We had uh, Edward Snowden, the disclosure. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of the NSA's networks and systems and infrastructures, midpoint collection and all that uh, being five desks away from him um and seeing all this him? go down i did yeah, i knew wow. i knew of him as a person he treated my junior sailors very disrespectfully um i i wasn't too too keen on the guy and i wasn't surprised mm -hmm. uh, when we had the disclosure happen and ultimately he still lives over in europe right i'm fairly certain he's not able to come back now no and i think and the thing was is people glorified him for addressing an issue the problem was is with any type of military intelligence there are risks um, there are ways that could have handled and many people would argue that he exhausted all resources to that. I said, no, because when you factor in things like human intelligence, where you have agents mm -hmm. working overseas and you know, trying to do what is basic national level security stuff, you disclose who their identities are, you put their lives and their families in danger. There's other ways to, to have done that. And when you look at the alpha personality type of that individual, you see why he did this things mm -hmm. was to garner attention. He wanted the attention. Mm -hmm. If he hadn't they turned had around and biopic sold. biopic on him also, right? There yep, was biopic. Like, I think it was a, a Jason Gordon-Levitt or someone. Yeah. Uh, came yeah, portrayed him. I haven't seen the movie. I don't really care to watch it. Uh, but yeah, sitting, sitting a couple of desks away from him at any time and just never really, never really saw him as just this, you know, savior that everyone kind of wanted to paint him mm -hmm. in the civilian world for addressing national security concerns. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, we've talked uh, somewhat about mental health and the fact that right. you got a diagnosis later in life. That still perplexes me, to be honest, because I'm going, how could your brother have been receiving that diagnosis? And it sounds like based on what you've shared so far that there was uh, some crossover. They should have seen that in you and Absolutely. figured, well, if they're twins, yeah. we need to check both of them. You should have. Yeah. And the same thing goes for, you know, it's, it's like any other medical consult you've got, you bring your kid to the dentist. Mm -hmm. You don't check the other one. One gets braces. The other one doesn't 10 years later, the other one's got the messed up teeth and the one with the braces, you know, it's fixed. You know, it's, it's kind of that, uh, you know, just kind of missing the beat on that. You know, it's, it's, you don't necessarily have to take all your kids every time one of them gets sick. So 
in that defense, it's just you recognize there are a lot more characteristics coming from one person than others. Uh, so that's ultimately what what came from that was um, having to deal with a lot of the repercussions of, of not necessarily feeling like there was blame to be had on the part of my family, mm-hmm. but just just knowing that I missed out I missed out on that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was the one ridiculed because I had really nice teeth going through high school, and all of my family essentially had braces at some point. So I, it was a you know that that was my gotcha moment. It was like, gotcha, you know, got to be something wrong with you. Why not Why not mental health? Mm. We're going to take just a minute to acknowledge our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we're back to the second half of our show, we've been talking about mental health. I'd like to ask you some questions because we're going to pull some of these out and use them in another thing that we're doing a promotional about autism and helping to raise awareness about what autism is. Are there some common misperceptions that people have about the autistic and what are they? Sure. I only found out recently uh, that the word Asperger's. So Asperger's is a type of autism. Mm -hmm. Um, Asperger's is used primarily the naming convention comes from was actually affiliated with the Nazis. There was a a researcher named Asperger's who was uh, essentially collecting autistic children and were vetting them. The the smarter, more productive ones were uh, essentially kept. And then the ones that they felt like couldn't function were discarded. And I don't know the validity of this. I was only recently told about this, but the, they're saying in the general community, they're no longer accepting Asperger's as the terminology for that, that hyper-productivity, hyper-focus. Um, they're usually prone to higher heightened emotions. Um, I have a cousin, uh, Kwasili, who has Asperger's. Um, he doesn't do well in society. Um, he's also dealt with, with other issues, troubled past, uh, and prone to violence. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where even in that scope, you're, you're then being put into a bubble, you're being put into a group, and you're being characterized by that. Um, with mine, for instance, you can be just really good at puzzles. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why are you so good at puzzles? I don't know, it's the way my brain works. Um, may, maybe you see the world as a vector model, whereas most people see it as a list. So you have your top priorities in your life. You hold up your hand, you have five fingers, mm-hmm. and you can name off the, the highest priorities. It doesn't matter if you start with your your uh, pointer finger or your, your thumb, you're going to name them off by what's most important to you. Somebody with an autistic brain and a vector model, they can have, you know, singular is their energy can be kind of like the palm of your hand and it'll just branch out. It doesn't matter where you start with your fingers. You can just start putting them down one after the other. And they don't necessarily have to have a high priority or not. It's just how much energy you divert to them. So at any time it can be different and that can be used in any element of any thought process from romanticizing partners to um, uh, trying to organize to-do lists. Uh, The big thing you always hear about is with autistic people is they write, they're supposed to write lists. You always tell them, write lists. Yeah, yeah, I have 20 lists scattered throughout my house that I have not looked at since I've written down down on them because I lose them or I just misplace them or object permanence. Once they're out out of my sight, they're out of my mind. So lists are not helpful to them. Not in the way that most people think, you know, why don't you just organize yourself? It's the method by organization that most neurotypical people think are okay. Neurodivergent people, we just need something a little different. We need something that motivates us, gets us jump started, 
there are times where people will talk about fatigue, you know, I'll get this fatigue that stops me from being productive today. And you get that burst of energy. You don't know when it's coming, but it's that burst of energy where you can just go through and be super productive. Well, there's, there's an imbalance there. Obviously you're, you're going through something doesn't necessarily have to be sleep deprivation. It doesn't have to be your eating habits. It literally can just be mental fortitude. And it's understanding that people all have different levels of, uh, of compatibility when it comes to the amount of stress that you can take on. The irony for me is that I function in high stress environments, but I don't really function in them. I thrive in areas where it requires me to be uh, for lack of better terms, powerful. I need to be assertive. I need to be dominant. I need to be in, in control of situations. That's a very military characteristic for a lot of people, veterans especially, where we always can take over and assume control of a situation we've been taught. Um, being in that position is in itself stressful. So if I'm, I've taken that role on, it's a little too difficult for me, I can start backpedaling. And I'm, I try to catch up, try to, to maintain that level that I may have had when I was in the military or at some point in my life where I felt like I could handle all that. We never give up. Military mm -hmm. veterans, they'll never give up. Mm -hmm. they, will, they will keep smashing that wall until it comes down. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an obstacle. That's a, you know, nine years of therapy does is you rationalizing you can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a big part of that, even in relationships. And, and particularly with relationships, we had an 85% divorce rate in the Navy. You, you got married, you got divorced and it sucks. It sucks to think that, you know, you're, you're going into a situation where your odds aren't, they're not favoring you at mm -hmm. all. Uh, but just the fact that you're going through things like deployment, uh, you're going to combat scenarios, you're going through experiences. That's that really you, hard on relationships. You won't be able to share with your significant other. And yeah. I, even in working in a top secret environment, I had to go home and I talked about the junior sailors and soldiers. I talked about their growth and their development. My partner didn't necessarily want to hear about it. They didn't want to know about my kids, the people that I was helping, you know, raise and carry through their military careers. Yeah. It was really all I could talk about. I couldn't talk about the job. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's frustrating. It was. So do a lot of individuals with autism, Asperger's, do they have to take medication? Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways to handle it, um, there are particularly compounding things with, uh, you know, multiple, if, if bipolar, bipolar, disorder, BPD, you've got a lot of military veterans, especially women are coming out with uh, traumas, mm -hmm. be, it, be it sexual trauma or PTSD. Um, military men also are coming out with PTSD. We're only learning now um, that, you know, that men are starting to use the resources at hand to talk, to talk out their issues. There are a lot of people who argue that, well, back in World War II, men were tough. No, no, it just meant they didn't communicate. Mm -hmm. And that was the issue, shell shock or otherwise. PTSD manifests in all kinds of ways in different forms from sitting with your back to a wall so that you can survey the room that you're in and mm -hmm. note all the exits, which people are left or right foot dominant. Um, I do that. I still do that to this day. You know, mm -hmm. I, I know which hand someone's going to eat with. Usually I know which, which side their good eye is. Um, typically not in a, in a attack manner. I don't, you know, I don't always think about like, how would I disable this person? I'm not mm -hmm. super spy, like that kind of person. Mm -hmm but it's just how to get away from a situation. You want to know how to exit. Um, I've had most recently, a couple months ago, I walked into a bar, uh, just a local bar. Mm -hmm. We had just done a, uh, this was actually Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day festival. I was walking around with a friend and I walked into a bar and the light hit me a certain way. It was a, a strobe kind of light. 
and I blacked out for about three minutes. Oh, wow. Yep. And I wasn't drinking. I hadn't had any drinks. I just walked into this bar. I subconsciously sat down, was hyperventilating, couldn't get my breath. So I stood up to try and go to the bar to get water, realized I couldn't do that in the state that I was in, went to the bathroom. This is, I don't remember any of this. Like, I don't know that I did this. This was some friend conveying to me. Went to the bathroom, wiggled the handle, realized I couldn't get the door open. So then the next step was to navigate outside. Somehow didn't hit anybody, didn't inter interface or, or cause any conflicts with anyone, bump shoulders, whatever. It was just move myself out of that situation. When I got outside, I started breathing. And I slowly remember just looking and seeing my friend's face staring at me being, what are you doing? What do you need? Can I help you? What's going on? And luckily, fortunately, I had a resource. I had a, a support that was there at the time. I don't know what I would have been like had nobody been there for me. Mm -hmm. And that is not characteristic. That's not something that regularly happens mm -hmm. for me. And the other issues I medicated, I medicated for stuff like that. So it's, mm -hmm. it's weird. And that means that you're not supposed to drink. Right. Oftentimes they tell you not to drink. Uh, mm -hmm. And like I, I wasn't consuming alcohol at this event. I was just hanging out and it was this, the strobing factor. It was this uh, X, Y, Z. Um, it's kind of a little bit like epilepsy. It kind of, like, yeah. Kind of like been. an epileptic episode um, that causes me to black out. And I didn't, I didn't have a stroke. I didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. still had motor function. I just detached from that situation mm -hmm. and was able to navigate my way out of there. And I, I hope it never happens again, but it was one of the first major. Was it scary? Um, I would say, yeah. In hindsight, right? In hindsight, you know, looking back at it, I actually, I, I would say it's probably more scary coming to, but afterwards I just like, I just kind of knew how to handle it. I mean, I've lived in the woods for six months. I've woken up in the middle of the night with a bear staring at me. I, you know, mm. there's scarier things in the world, but losing control of your body is definitely, is definitely up there. It's definitely up there. Sounds more like sleepwalking almost because you're conscious, Yep. not really conscious of what's going on, but the, you're able to function just right. like what you're saying. There's a word for it, I'm sure. And I don't know if it's related to PTSD. I don't know if it's related to some sort of neurodivergence, uh, synapses in the brain, eating spicy fried food, who knows what caused it. Mm -hmm. um, but these are all things that I somehow tie, you know, I believe that it's related to my military service, exposure to burn pits in Africa, injuries I may have sustained while I was deployed on a ship, getting beat around on, you know, on a um, heavy storm night, whatever, mm -hmm. any number of injuries I could have sustained while I was serving, carrying that out with me, mm -hmm. now realizing these are things I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life. So it's important to talk about them. There is a really good book. Um, I'm looking it up right now. And it was something that I read when I was in college. And it's called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Have you heard of that? I've heard of it. Yes. It's really good. Right. I would recommend you read it. I think that for you, for anybody that has served in the military, they'll find it very, very cathartic. Hmm. Um, it's a series of little vignettes um, that Tim O'Brien, um, he pulled, he served in Vietnam and he pulled from, you know, different people that were right. stationed with him. And he, what he does is he says, so the helmet, this is something that we wear. And he says how much it weighs. And then this is the things that the soldier carries, whether right. it's a gun, a helmet, your backpack, the, the clothes that you're wearing. But there's also the things that are not visible to mm -hmm. the eye. You carry a picture um, and it's in your wallet or some type of a cross or whatever. Right. And then it's just even the memories that you carry with you. 
really good book. It's actually something that people can download and read. Highly recommended. It it was extremely impactful. It left a really big impression. I was trying to see how I could bring that into the classroom uh, when yeah. I was teaching high school, but it was adult adult stuff for sure. Sure, and I think especially with older generations, you still hear. Uh, I, I go and I teach. I speak. Um, I, I do um, talk with young, like Gen Z, new generations that are coming up, especially those that are just coming out of high school. I'll often go and speak with them, either colleges or otherwise, and and do you know talk about war and PTSD, and I will sit with them and discuss. Well, how do I communicate with my uncle? He's very cold. He's very quiet. He doesn't mm-hmm. like to talk about his experiences in the military, and and honestly, it's it's a recurring theme is that people you've got a lot of veterans. So oftentimes, they'll sit in their room. They'll sit in their room, stare at a wall for hours and hours and hours, and and go sit on and their reclining sofa and stare at a TV screen and not be able to relate, not want to talk about their past experiences, not want to deal with a lot of the trauma of things that we've done. And I'm lucky. I've always wanted to communicate. It's been a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. I think my, my neurodivergence helped me with that. Is it even struggling with things like PTSD? I'm somehow able to communicate while I'm in those states to get out of them. I still have a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky you to, are. To, to be able to come from that because I know that especially with the number veteran suicides i know we specifically still talk about 21 22 deaths a day i don't know the relevancy of that that statistic i know it's broken up a little you know it's it's, it's a little bit of a a fallacy it's not necessarily right on the money but there is one is too much one one suicide even one yeah it's too much much. and i think that we're we're getting there unfortunately the reliance on the va the veterans administration for those those health care resources psychology and psychiatry to get those resources from people even to for me to go and get regular appointments they're they're few and far and in between but they're hard i shared with you my brother's uh, contact information hope you guys were able to connect yeah we did and we talked at length and it was good to to connect and it's amazing even the age difference you know there's there's a slight age difference uh, is that we were able to still share a lot of the same experiences mm-hmm. when it comes to being a veteran, when it comes to uh, putting in for things like um, a disability claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's important is understanding so many veterans get out and they don't think that they deserve mental health resources. Mm-hmm. They don't think they deserve to get some sort of extra compensation to offset the cost of what it would take for them to deal with day-to-day life coming mm-hmm. out, of the, out of the service. I think that's really yeah. important. It is. He Well, he's like Superman to me, so he's he's yeah. up there. And that I call, I think I told you, he's like Dos Equis, So yeah, such a warrior. Most, most interesting, most interesting you know, veteran in the world. Yeah. 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 Well, he's <laughs> one of them. That's for sure. There's others. All right. So we're closing into the end of the show. All right. 2030. What do you think that's going to look like? Because I know that you're going into this space of consulting and your specialty is in um, marketing. Mm-hmm. And you shared earlier before we got on the air that you had a TikTok video, right? That was sure. how many million? Uh, it was 4.6, 4.8 million views. That uh, is crazy. Yeah, yeah, a couple that are several hundred thousand. Uh, so what do you think 2030 marketing is going to look like? You know, it's it's all internet of things. It's it's all networking. It's, it's um, conferences. It's connection. It's really just who you know over, over what you know. I think it's still going to stay to that trend of, you know, I was talking with people working theater production, uh, graduating out of Valencia College and then moving into uh, full theater production at great paying jobs locally because they they're who they knew coming out mm-hmm. as alumni 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to stay that way. I think that especially military veterans, the understanding is that there's often a disparity between understanding military veterans have unique skill sets that may not be easy to put on paper, you know, or if it is, you're, you're, you're trying to weigh the fact that someone has uh, that, that doesn't have that on paper education that everyone's really stressing about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I call it real world experience. I've, I've talked to enough human resources, hiring managers and otherwise who, who want to reinstate. It's amazing that you have this great military experience. I really wish you just had more real world experience. It's a slap in the face to anybody who, anybody who served and gave, you know, 11 years, 11 years is a career. Mm-hmm millennials these days and that's my age group we don't we don't last jobs mm-hmm. statistically we're on rotation every two to three years we're looking for new opportunities to survive and last even in the military for that long that that's an accomplishment that's I think significant that's, yeah that's something people should look at it doesn't matter what the, the the gap between the time you served and when you got out you show commitment and i think that's important especially with being able to maintain something like with my case was a top secret security clearance all these requirements these vetting processes regular trainings every year that you had to do and, and make sure that you weren't, you know, uh, you know, breaking the law when it came to handling things like sensitive information. So the trend is that um, people starting, you know, even now in this decade, moving forward, will have at least five, five, five different careers. Mm-hmm. So your military life was one career. You right. could be, um, and you were in esports. I was, I was an esports commentator, shoutcaster. Commentator. That's a second career path. Right. Marketing consultant. I've done know. millions of jobs. Yeah. If we, if we look at it that way. Yeah. Um, I've been a, a professional hiker. I was a hiker for a long time. Mm-hmm. I would lead hiking groups out into the, the mountains of Hawaii. So you were a guide. I was a guide. Yep. Yeah. And I loved it. I taught uh, the history of the Hawaiian lands to a lot of junior military and a mm-hmm. lot of civilians. Uh, allowed them to network and be able to become friends that they had you know, junior military with access to. Once again, referencing back to the MWR, creating environments where morale, welfare, and recreation could be met by having civilians go and pick up these junior militaries at their bases and go out and have a life, go out and, and, and learn about the culture, learn about Hawaiians um, or, or you know, that largely the Southeast Asian population that now dominate the island of Oahu is 32.8%, I think was the demographic when I was there. You know, 32% of the population is Southeast Asian, you know, uh, is people that have moved towards the islands, the same thing for if you're a military, 800,000 of the 2.8 million that were out in Hawaii at the time were uh, were military-based or were military logistics or dependents assigned there for uh, helping with that giant military infrastructure that comes out of Pearl Harbor, um, Wahiwa, uh, you know, all those forts that are out there, Kaneohe at the Marine Corps base. So it's just about getting out and learning more about where you're at, where you're, where you're focusing on mm-hmm. and being a guide was, was a really good thing for me. I used to lead uh, people out to the sandbar. I drive boats out to the sand, I got licensed to, to be a boat operator. I'm, I'm in the Navy. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love the water. So I would do scuba trips out to electric beach guiding on, you know, I called it the barefoot hikers because we'd go hiking in the, in the morning. And then at the end of the day, we'd be on a beach barefooted walking out in the water mm-hmm. you know just enjoying life and i loved it and from esports commentator i ended up hiking the appalachian trail um that was after a, a, a divorce that was not unexpected but i'd gotten out of the military to kind of work on it didn't survive i was enrolled at the time as an editor-in-chief of the newspaper as well as going to school full-time at university of the pacific in stockton became editor-in-chief of their college newspaper really turned it around, I feel like. And then even now I, I work in a capacity of 
I drive, you know, I, I drive around in Uber. I do Uber. I do um, journalism. I do editor in chief of the Valencia Voice, um, and then um, I, I'm I'm writing. I'm blogging, doing podcasting, doing everything. Yeah. So there you go. More than five career paths. All right. So best mentoring advice that you would like to share with our listeners and why? Uh, uh, fail daringly. Mm. That's something I learned in my acting class. I do stand up and improvisational comedy. Every so time I, there's I like a one. new career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do stand up. And part of that is dealing with PTSD. Improvisational comedy lets you just spit things out. Is and that at Saks? It was a sack. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did work with uh, what Wayne Brady became famous at, mm-hmm. at SAC uh, Comedy Lab. I worked out of there. Um, I've also uh, hosted a, a lot of open night nights. The idea being is that with PTSD, you want to be out of your headspace. You want to be kind of impulsive. You want to do whatever you think is going to happen. That can be whatever, especially a military. We tend to have a lot of a lot less filtering when it comes to interacting with what we call civilians. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing stand-up comedy and you blurt out a word that may be inappropriate to an audience, you have to understand that may not fly. Mm-hmm. But in the process, you're also learning more about yourself. You're you're failing, you know, you're, you fail daringly. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to try something, a new food, a new place, a new experience. I still get uh, somewhat apprehensive about walking through doors that I don't know what's on the other side. I still, really? I still get very ang- anxious being around large crowds of people but I have to work to overcome that. So even if I can't be in that environment for a long time, I failed daringly. I've given it my all. I've tried my hardest to make it work. And I think even with your learning new hobbies, new interests, knitting, knitting's not for me. Duolingo, I've tried a number of times to learn new languages and I failed daringly, but who knows? Maybe that there's that one time that you'll succeed and you'll reach that point where you have you know, that, that pat on the back where it'll be just enough to show that you've done all you could. You've reached that level. You finally found something that clicked and it mm-hmm. made life all the more better for you. That is a uh, really good advice. Uh, okay. So how can our listeners contact you? Um, we always supply everybody's LinkedIn profile. So that one you gave permission, mm-hmm. but email website. I know that you said that earlier. Why don't you go ahead and share it with our listeners? Yeah, I've got a couple uh, things going on. Uh, Barefoot Hiker is my social media account still to this day. I don't really do a lot of hiking on it, obviously. Uh, but Barefoot Hiker is my social account. Uh, that's a more of a personal on what one. what social account? On any of them. Okay. Look for it on any social channel. Right. So just Barefoot Hiker. Uh, it'll be under, uh, you know, Jeremy and uh, big, big giant ginger redhead. And the same thing for my TikToks and all that. I do uh, funny content creation, a couple of thirst traps, just be forewarned. Um, nothing too, you know, lascivious, but I like to get out there and, and have a good time. And I think that's, that's what it's about going out of your element and mm-hmm. just doing what you like to do. And if people support you, that's where you're going to get the biggest fan base is those that really nurture, you know, your creativity, your productivity. Right. Uh, and I always tell people, no matter what, if you put out a bad video, you're still, you, know, you still fail daringly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's all part of that, that growth. So barefoot hiker, uh, Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else uh, and, and Facebook. Um, and then I think Barefoot Hikers Worldwide would be my Facebook one. I think it's pretty inactive right now. Uh, that was specifically for my hiking stuff. But once I you know, move over more into the consulting 
you'll find me pretty easily on there. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really want to, I'm very glad that you were able to come in and share all of this great insight. It's going to be super good. I know I'm going to continue to have conversations uh, with you on other things that are related. Sure. And I look forward to seeing up, seeing you at PodFest right. that's coming up. So yeah, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Now this show will air after PodFest. So our listeners know that. So you can always go back and find us either at PodFest or certainly here on your favorite podcast streaming channel. So Jeremy, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team and video interns, Christian Flowers and Daniel Conti. Music is by Sophie Lloyd, and our sound engineer is Eric Peterson. Please visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while upskilling your people for the future of work. Thank you for listening to The Interim Whisper and follow us on your favorite podcast channels.